Welcome to That Bleeping Podcast, a podcast wherein four academics who love television recap, analyze, and love and hate on all things popular culture. Right now, we're working our way through Degrassi The Next Generation, taking them two episodes or three episodes at a time. Today, we have a long one covering 216 Message in a Bottle, 217 Relax, and 218 Dressed in Black. Before we start, two things. Spoiler alert. There will be full spoilers as we recap each week's episodes. And sailor alert, we will swear probably, so hide your baby's ears. I'm Tiffany Salter. I'm professor of Asian American and Pacific literature. Um, and I also teach classes on cartoons and science fiction and other nerdy things. I'm Jacinta. I'm an assistant professor of English. I study television, film, and pop culture and teach a bunch of classes related to that, as well as writing and digital media. I'm Sonic Gabbard. I'm in the Department of Women's and Gender Studies and Peace and Conflict Studies. Uh, my areas of research are mostly on global and transnational sexuality and queer studies, um, but I also teach pop culture, film studies, etc., from a feminist perspective. I'm Brendan. I'm an assistant professor of English. I teach a lot of composition along with African-American literature and gender and sexuality studies courses. Uh, and as a note, you can watch all the episodes we are talking about on YouTube for free. Yay. Huzzah. All right. So I want to start today with message in a bottle. Um, episode 216, aptly titled, as we'll soon discover. Um, so in Message in a Bottle, there's a couple sort of primary relationship plots going on, right? Um, so on one hand, we have the continuation of uh, Sean and Emma's sort of rekindled relationship that we talked about previously. Um and part of what this ends up involving is Emma telling her parents before she talks to Sean that Sean's going to come to dinner one night. Um, Sean, of course, does not want to go to this dinner because he feels awkward about it. Um, he's also having a hard time in his life. Uh, in this episode, his brother has quit uh, his job and Sean's sort of feeling various kinds of ways about his family and position in life. And we get some references to his parents in particular, um, to them drinking a lot and so on and so forth. Right. So Sean doesn't really want to go to this dinner, but Emma is Emma. So she persuades him, um, on the promise that they can go to a party that Jimmy is having, um, afterwards, Jimmy and Sean have sort of tentatively, um, not quite developed a friendship, but they're on this basketball team together and Spinner sort of tries to peacemaker their relationship after, of course, as we know, last season, they had the big blow up over Ashley and such. 
Um, so Jimmy does invite Sean to the party. Sean wants to go to the party. Emma promises they will go to the party after dinner with her parents. Simultaneously, um, Jimmy and Ashley have also sort of been rekindling their relationship, uh, tentatively, of course. And, um, Jimmy, by way of Terry, also invites Ashley to the party. Um, so... We can imagine that at this party, all sorts of hijinks will ensue, right? Um, so eventually we get to this dinner with Sean and Emma and Snake and Spike, which is sushi on the floor and all sorts of shenanigans that Sean is not prepared for. Um, and they are awkward as per usual. Um, but an attempt is being made on, on all fronts. Um, Sean, at one point, uh, goes to get some water in the kitchen, notices a bottle of wine on the table, which I guess Snake was drinking because Spike is pregnant. Whatever. Anyway, he notices the bottle of wine, um, decides to chug some of that real quick, um, and then goes back out into the dinner. Um, The dinner continues. Spike um, offers Sean some leftovers. Sean misinterprets her intentions um, and storms out, thinking that she's sort of seeing him as a charity case. He goes to the party, uh, and at first it's cool hanging out with people, connecting with Craig. We know that they've had some friendship in the past, and Craig sort of recognizes that Sean is drunk and not okay, but, you know, they're, like, 14, so what what are they doing here? Um, Sean notices a bottle of alcohol that Jimmy's parents have, so he hijacks that to pour into his bottle of some lemon-lime type of drink. I don't Sprite, uh, I, don't, I don't know what it is, but something of that nature. Um, and so Sean's getting drunk at the party. Ashley and Terry are also at the party feeling awkward and uncomfortable. Um, Ashley doesn't really feel welcome there because Jimmy didn't directly invite her, um, so on and so forth. Eventually, Emma shows up having chased after Sean. Sean is increasingly drunk and ridiculous, and eventually the bottle of alcohol drops from his hand and he gets broke. it gets broken. Jimmy sees that, gets mad at Sean for taking his parents' booze and kicks Sean out. Of course, Emma follows. When Ashley and Terry are preparing to leave, Jimmy stops them because Jimmy just wants to spend time with Ashley. Aww. Anyway, <laughs> um... And Sean and Emma hang out outside by the road, like literally the side of the road, while Sean is drunk and ridiculous um, and telling her what a screw up he is and et cetera, et cetera. And Emma basically won't let him give up. And she calls her mom to take them home. And she, they have a follow-up discussion at school. And basically she tells him, you know, he screwed up, but he's not some terrible person and he still gets to like be in her life and do better and such. And that's more or less the gist of that episode. Ooh, this episode. Yeah. (laughs) I am. It's interesting. So 
I wrote a couple times like this is like not Emma's fault. <laughs> and like <laughs> no, and I wrote that because I think that so often on this show it is Emma's character is a well, she like tries overly hard. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's very like I mean having your boyfriend over for dinner is not that big of a deal and it also seems like her parents like you know spike and snake really want to do this thing mm-hmm. it, it it like i i just didn't feel like there was any fault here like i thought she was doing and she also didn't go too far right like often emma goes too far she pushes things mm-hmm. and this was seemed very much like it was sean's deal that emma was sort of caught up in Mm-hmm. And that the discussion at the very end, uh, sort of about the difference between like screwing up and being a screw up, I thought was really trenchant, like and sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought Craig was really sweet at the party. Yeah, like, he, he was, was really trying yeah. with Sean, and he was really trying to sort of protect Sean. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought the stuff. I mean, it's Degrassi, so the alcohol stuff is always sort of not quite pitched where it should be, but I thought it was well handled for them in how it's very clear why he's drinking, when he's drinking, what he thinks it's going to do and what it doesn't do for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, the only thing, my only hitch with Emma was that she basically uh, ambushed Sean uh, with the parent dinner like you need to, you need to do a little bit more laying of groundwork if you're going to introduce you're, you're, well, I mean, he knows them, but if you're going to take somebody home for dinner, uh, that and also her very age appropriate reaction to her mom scaring Sean off. Like, I was like, this is peak 13 year old for Emma to be like, Mom, what you do? Yeah. <laughs> so for me, for me, that felt, that felt perfectly on point uh, and on brand. But I agree, Brenda, Brendan. Uh, Emma was, she was pretty good today. And she wasn't the one who put together the super racist orientalist meal where they're all in. So, I mean, Jacinta mentioned that they're sitting on the floor, but just to give a full picture, they're sitting on the floor. They all took their shoes off. Uh, Spike has made sushi. Um, They're talking about sumo wrestlers. Spike and Snake are both wearing these vaguely quote-unquote Japanese tops uh yeah they're using I mean it's and some of it makes sense you would eat sushi with chopsticks but it's very clearly this like whole performance which is clearly coming from the adults right and right and also oh go ahead well and it like who's the audience here and and because I mean how is this going to read for like I guess who are they trying to press in in what way eating at the the um coffee table and and pretending that you are in some way being authentic to the meal uh which you have prepared for you've prepared a a dish that is challenging for uh you know an adolescent's palate generally and and you don't know this person there was just in addition to the the sort of performative orientalism it it was like for whom and um yeah because it's who's your audience here 
Well, and also it seems like, I mean, they obviously eat sushi semi-regularly, but I can't imagine that they go through all of that every time they want to eat some sushi. Like, they don't deck out the whole living room situation (laughs) every time they want to have some sushi. Yeah, there is a line that I think is supposed to explain part of it that, like, this is her mom's, like, fancy company dish, but also, yeah, why... It's like, this would make sense if her friends, like her friends, like Spike's friends came over. (laughs) In what world is this? I mean, I think partly it ends up being that this sort of like, quote unquote, ethnic cuisine also becomes encoded as like another way that Sean is like poorer than them. Right. Because he just doesn't even know. It gives him something else to not know. Um, Right. It's cosmopolitan. Yeah, in the world of the show. And I mean, it's interesting too, the layers, because I don't think of Emma's mom and stepdad as like particularly like bougie, right? Because this is a world where they then go to the party at Jimmy's house, which is actually bougie. Right, right. But it is compared to Sean, because at the very beginning of the episode, right, they basically live in a shack, Sean and his brother, and Sean's brother needs the space so Emma and Sean get kicked out of studying. And they can't even use this sort of shared space. So it's sort of these layers of class. Also at the beginning, there's another shared soda. (laughs) No, Brendan, you guys, I literally wrote this in my notes. He pulls out two cans of Coke. (laughs) What we're to to learn from this is that Sean is better than Manny in terms of treating his friends. (laughs) He will give her her own Coke. But Canadians must not use, must not drink out of the can. They must pour into glass, which we all know is less effective because you lose that carbonation. So Canada, bad. Well, at least he didn't pull out his own set of solo cups, I guess. (laughs) A la Manny. Glass for, for fancy dates. Yeah. Um, one more thing about the sushi too, but and and I agree on all accounts, but also just since I'm glad you brought up Spike being pregnant and not drinking, but also she's eating raw fish, which you're also not supposed to do when you're pregnant. And also drinking coffee. So little, some some little inconsistencies there. I mean I mean you can have a little coffee. You get a little coffee, but also like I mean, there were California rolls and grilled octopus, so I mean I don't know which parts of it she was eating, but there were definitely some non-raw options in the mix. Sean is like me. I don't like the seaweed. And I could tell from his grimace that we were in this together. (laughs) (laughs) Can we, so can, can I, there's a red herring in this episode and it's pickled herring. And I don't, I don't. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Nice. I wrote I wrote a note about that because I was so Sean when he's preparing to go to this family dinner after he's had a slight argument with Tracker um, goes to the refrigerator and pulls out this jar of pickled herring and Tracker says where are you going with my pickled herring punk <laughs> and <laughs> Sean tells him about the dinner and then he goes and he takes it like that I don't know what they do in Canada, but I've never showed up to anybody's house with a jar of pickled herring, so I don't know. Did I miss it? Did did it? Did he give it to them? I it, like it. Just I thought it like I don't think so. Yes. No, no, no. 
No, it sits on the table. Oh. There's one scene where it's sitting on the coffee table unopened. I missed it. But- yeah, I mean, I think we cut to them in the middle of the meal. I mean, I, I, I just read that as like, he knows that there's a convention where you bring something to someone's house. Mm-hmm. but he doesn't have the money to buy something. So he just picks what's out of the fridge. Yeah. My dad likes pickled herring. So I wasn't, I mean, pickled herring is a very like, I mean, because it, it's pickled, it can last forever. So it made sense to me that they would have it, but yeah, no, it doesn't get, it's just, I, I just thought it's like completely wrong. Right. right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and <clears throat> so there were two things. Um, and the minor thing is that I loved that it was set up. I noticed it when he opened the fridge. It's prominent. There were very few things in the refrigerator when Sean opens it to grab the soda. And it's right there in the middle. And I was like, okay, that's weird to have pickled herring so prominently displayed. And, you know, Degrassi is nothing if not, like, very particular in its, uh, you know, its narrative threads. Um, but the other thing was, I mean... Like, I think that we're we're coming on a run of episodes that are, like, really interested in class dynamics. And, it, like, I think that, like, the, the, the difference in pickled herring versus sushi as, like, um, mm-hmm. meals that these two have access to on a regular basis um, is just, it's one more marker in particular of, of the, the class dynamic that's going on between uh, Emma's family and, and Sean's family. Yeah, well, and fish that can last forever versus fish that has to be eaten immediately or else it's not good, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I would also like to note that Sean's refrigerator situation comes up again next semester. Sean never has, like, things that you would expect to be in his refrigerator in his refrigerator, so just keep that in mind for next season, too. (laughs) Noted. I mean, it's also a bachelor thing, too, right? Like, it's also supposed to let us know, like, in thinking about gender dynamics, like, men men being Tracker and boys being Sean don't know how to buy buy groceries. You know, there's also that sort of, like, oh, it's a bachelor pad, like, hosting people, da-da-da. Whereas to go, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not agreeing with this but to think about what spike said like oh you don't have a home-cooked meal like it's supposed to reiterate that too like the weird fridge stuff yeah and as yeah also sushi is not what i think of when i think of home-cooked meal right exactly (laughs) in like that in that in that sort of context like it is someone's home-cooked meal but like the way he was talking about it did not make sense yeah and yeah um as a way to kind of get into this home cooked meal situation um <laughs> there's um there's this moment where um I think it's right before that where Emma says to Spike that she shouldn't ask certain things about his family um and stuff um and Spike says it's just that children shouldn't have to live with that kind of stress and I I guess I just thought in this moment like it didn't make much sense to me that spike would like have that sort of insight or even feeling if if not in if it if not uh insight per se but then continue to ask him about it in an already stressful situation where a kid is meeting his girlfriend's parents and then like asking him about something that he might be well likely is like pretty uncomfortable talking about it just seemed um 
her defense that it's just that children shouldn't have to live with that kind of stress is not actually a response to the situation, um, either to Emma or in regard to like how she like interacts with Sean. Right. I mean, there's a lot of, um, With a lot of these episodes, I, I've been thinking a lot about how often the adults treat the children, like the teenagers, or like they're also adults. And there's a lot of stuff that results from them sometimes forgetting they're still young adults or teenagers. Yeah. And there's this like weird disconnect because a lot of what happens in that scene is so awkward is that Emma is actually in some ways more... I mean, she's not doing it in the best way. I don't think she means it to be, like she's not ashamed of Sean. She's trying to protect Sean and Spike isn't able to pick up on it. And Spike is trying to treat him like they're just two adults that could talk about this, but it's like really wrong. And in this case, Emma's sort of like, don't, don't, don't make sense. And yeah, I mean, I just wrote in my notes at a certain point, this, this like, there's so many awkward situations in this episode. And I think that because when we move to the party scene, it's just a series of awkward encounters where people don't say what they want to say. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of this also goes back to something we talked about in a previous episode, which is that there is, because this series is oriented around the fact that Emma is Spike's daughter, which is how we got this next generation, the age gap between the adults and the teens is shorter and most like the adults we spend the most time with shorter than we might expect from a show like this like other teen shows we would see like parents would be in their 40s or whatever and have these long careers and whatnot and spike and snake are barely 30 and i think that sort of at least to some extent uh, speaking as a person who taught middle school when they were 23 and student taught and tutored high school students when they were like 22, like it, it is weird being that close in age sometimes and figuring out like how those relationships work. And so I think that is also part of what we see happening there. Right. Like I was thinking about um, when I was watching the the dinner Dinner with parents is awkward, period. Dinner with a 13, 14-year-old is awkward, period. 13, 14-year-olds having dinner with their friends' parents, like, of course, the conversations are going to be not just awkward, but at times, there's going to be a lot of dead air. So I was actually a little bit surprised that there was more conversation than there was. Like, I was expecting it to just be a silent dinner. Um, but I agree in terms of the topic Spike and Snake were picking up on. Um, but also, I, I I don't know any 13-year-old that can have like a long-term, like a, a long conversation with an adult over dinner, over sushi. Besides Emma. I mean, I think there is a way in which what Sean perceives as a class difference is also just about the fact that Emma is Spike's daughter. Right. Right. Emma... The thing that makes Emma annoying also makes Emma very good at interacting in this Degrassi world where all these adults talk to children and mm-hmm. and early teens like they're adults sometimes. And so then Emma is very well suited, but also gets her in trouble. Whereas Sean is already just a shot, like 
Sean's kind of a, a guy's guy, right? That's kind of the way he's written. Like he's very sweet or he can be, uh, but he's not Craig, right? When we get to the party, Craig is much better at being a guy's guy, but also taking a step back. Craig is much more mature in certain ways than Sean. Plus Sean has this chip on his shoulder, which is established from the beginning of the episode. Um, I mean, maybe we should talk about the, like how this, I don't know, because it's interesting what you said about people not talking, because when we get to the party, there's actually more not talking at the party. Yeah. I think what makes the party so uncomfortable is like Ashley and Terry show up and oh my God, they're here at the party. Yep. And they just kind of stand yeah. around and their primary function at the party is to stand around and not get talked to. Before we talk about the party in depth and what's happening there, can we also note like the r- vast cornucopia of people at this party, including <laughs> but not limited to someone with a cowboy hat, someone with a mullet, somebody with a spiked jacket. Like, what was happening <laughs> in this party? Who who are these people that Jimmy had in his apartment? <laughs> Jimmy is the true cosmopolitan in this episode, okay? <laughs> he has a menagerie of friends. Apparently. <laughs> But yeah, the party the party is a lot of like like when Ashley and Terry first get there, right? Jimmy and they talk briefly, but then Jimmy goes off to entertain his other guests and by the time that they actually interact again, it's like when Ashley and Terry are leaving, but then Jimmy wants them her to stay. And after Sean breaks the glass, uh the bottle Jimmy goes to pick it up with his hands because I don't know, he's never heard of brooms and he cuts <laughs> and he cuts himself and Ashley helps him with that. And that is like how they have their almost kiss moment in this yeah. episode. That's the groan moment for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we're just going to make intense you've eye never, contact. What you, you've never almost kissed over broken glass on it. Oh, no, I've only almost kissed over a finger that needs stitches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, their chemistry is so lacking. Um, yeah, one of the things I wrote in my notes is that Ashley and Terry are what my total wannabe vibe is at a party. Like, I want to be that they, their mood is what I always feel at parties, but I'm an extroverted introvert, so I don't ever let that come out. But I really appreciate them standing in as basically the the weirdos in the corner, because I, I feel like the weirdo in the corner, so I appreciate them. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I liked that they were in that place, and I liked... Oh. Like... Go for it, Jacinta. I was also just going to mention Spinner and some random person running around spraying each other with whipped cream yeah. Oh, yeah. or something. Like, what was happening at this party? It's middle school body shot. <laughs> it's a varsity blue. It's varsity. Yeah, exactly. Middle school body shots. I was like, oh, varsity blue, I see you. Oh, my God. No whipped cream bikinis, please and thank you. <laughs> I was also just going to note that, like, I know Ashley and Paige or whatever have made amends, but like seeing Terry, Ashley, and Ellie and Paige like hang out is like weird. It's a very weird group. And Hazel too. Hazel's in that mix too. Hey, but they can't all be there at the same time. So like if 
Terry's there. Half the time, Hazel's not there. Or if Ellie's there, Terry's not there. Like, it's not all the people at the same time. Right. Right. So I do want to shift gears a little bit because I do think I want to talk. I know, Tiffany, you already mentioned the class, the setup to talking about class. Um, But one of the other things I was thinking about is how Degrassi still individualizes these sort of structural problems. Like I was thinking about the final conversation with Emma and Sean and how Emma says, me, I'm a screw up or like me screwing up. It's in my blood. And for, you know, in that way that the drinking and doing a party foul, I think stands in for, or is sort of the screwing up, but it's also like a sanitized version of poverty and addiction, which is what Sean's really talking about because he talks about his dad being an alcoholic earlier in the episode and his dad not being able to hold down a job, et cetera. So I wanted to just bring that up uh, and see what y'all thought about, like how they're doing this coded language around um, addiction and class with the whole idea of being a screw up. Yeah. And I I think that the the conversation between Sean and his brother Tracker is interesting when um, we find out that Tracker has quit his job because clearly like, I think that like what's happening is like Sean is like, this is the evidence for Sean that it's in the blood. Like he sees his brother, you know, falling into the same patterns um, that his father has Um, And so then makes this sort of like therefore conclusion statement that like, well, this must be hereditary. Um, And yeah, the the show does not do anything to, to disabuse us of this, this sort of like formulation. Um, And yeah. Well, I think this is the place though, where, and I think Jacinta's maybe said this in some episode in the past, but like, I mean, the show is very pedagogical, but it also is very attuned to how people personal personally feel things, right? Like they're not going to perceive this as more than just personalized, especially Sean, because he's just seen it personally. And the only adults in the episode that we spend some time with are Tracker, who's, even closer to the age of his brother and Spike and Snake who are very well-meaning, but like, I don't know. I I mean, I think it's hard to know how we would see the structural thing when we're so focused on individual stories. I do think part of the reason I felt like this was definitely not Emma's fault is because of the unspoken structural stuff because Emma's trying so hard interpersonally And a little bit of what she says at the end is sort of pushing back against this sort of trapped in a machine narrative that Sean is putting out there, which is one way people deal with this kind of situation is sort of hyper-personalizing it. Well, but is that, Um, I think is that about like the opportunity, but to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? I mean, like, or is that, I mean, like, there's one way to break the narrative that sort of, like, reinforces the narrative, like, quote, unquote, the exception proves the rule um, versus, um, okay, like, you don't have to, like, it's not in your blood, you have, you know, a a limited amount of power to sort of, like, improve your situation, like, via education, but, like, until you, you can 
move out of the situation that you're in, like you're in it. Like, I mean, there's, and, and not that I would expect like Emma, who is herself very young to sort of be able to have that larger um, understanding. But, but yeah, I mean, like I wondered in that moment, whether it was a sort of bootstraps uh, logic um, to, to what she was saying. Right. And also, how is Emma saying it's in your head again? And I know we're supposed to do a generous read of Emma, but also thinking about the show and the writers, how is Emma saying uh, it's all in your head, a form of gaslighting, Sean, for for the feeling that he has this sort of hopelessness about upward mobility, um, because he hasn't gotten a lot of support by by his community, by by the adults, by other forms of um, social welfare, etc. So for her to say it's it's in your head also in a in a way almost negates his experience. Well, I mean, I will say I but he's not talking I mean, yes, I think that structural stuff is there. The conversation is about his specific actions though. And to me it also felt like a callback to the wedding episode where she goes to Sean and Sean tells her, you've screwed up, but that doesn't mean people don't still care about you. So in some ways, this to me also felt personally like a like an inversion of that, right? In that episode, Emma does too much of who she usually is. And Sean says, people will still care about you. In this episode, Emma says to Sean, you've done too much of what might be your flaw in this moment, but people still care. About you. I mean, I think that doesn't, I don't want to negate the class stuff, but I don't know. I guess I just wonder how much the show is going to deal with the adults we're given with this stuff. I think that also part of why, you know, that they are kind of balancing some of this by having Tracker point out to Sean that even though he quit his job, he it doesn't actually behave like their dad. He doesn't go spend all their money on alcohol and bad things he doesn't go and stay unemployed he has a job interview right so even though he did quit his job you know he still has the ability to do better than the example that was set for them yeah and I wonder also how much um we're supposed to also think about the systemic things that have affected Sean in so much like, so I cannot remember why was he held back a grade? He beat somebody up. <laughs> and was, was he, so he was expelled and then had to come back in. Um, He like, I don't remember the exact timeline. He was at Degrassi at one point and he was at his parents in Musaga. And Musaga is where he, beat the guy up and I don't remember exactly what happened but for whatever reason he got held back okay never mind that's a rabbit trail I maybe not productive um go ahead oh, I was gonna say do we want to I mean we could go down this even further but I also wondered if we want to move to the next episode which is yeah. sort of it kind of yeah Drops out a lot of this stuff uh, in the third episode. I think we're going to talk about today is a little more quote unquote serious, but I think the second episode is a little lighter. Yeah. yeah so in episode two seventeen, titled "Relax," um, we get 
uh, I would say some pretty high comedy from Degrassi. <laughs> um, I certainly cackled the whole time uh, for a variety of reasons. So <clears throat> earlier in the series, you know, we had the very dramatic episode where Toby wanted to be an athlete, right? Because he's a smart guy and wanted to be seen as an athlete. In this episode, we have Liberty now wanting to be an athlete, um, and particularly um, on the girls' hockey team. Um, Liberty does not make the team because uh, she's not good at playing hockey. But Miss Hatsalakos, who is the hockey coach for the girls, um, offers Liberty the opportunity to be the team manager which Liberty accepts, right? So um, she has team manager type roles, which mostly involves a lot of laundry, so on and so forth, right? Um, Because of this, Liberty gets to see the sad state of the girls' hockey team uniforms, which are pretty shabby. Um, And so she tries to get sponsorship for their uniforms um, from Joey, Uh, Joey has already promised to sponsor the boys' basketball team, and he tells Liberty he can't do both. So uh, Liberty tries to persuade him, and the boys do not like this uh, attempt at thieving their sponsor, so they have a little boy-girl confrontation that ultimately ends with Liberty proposing a boys-versus-girls hockey game. Um, much to the chagrin of the girls that are actually on the team, which are like most of the girls in her friend group, apparently, including Emma, Manny, and Kendra. Um, Degrassi is very freewheeling with everybody on these sports teams, but we could talk about that later. Um, so then Ms. Hasselakos tells Liberty that she doesn't have the time to take on this extra responsibility so liberty takes up the charge to lead the girls to victory earlier in the episode we've seen liberty turn in our outline on napoleon which her professor gave or her teacher gave her very high marks for (laughs) so of course when liberty becomes the the leader of this team endeavor she comes in with a cape like Napoleon, um, <laughs> and a large playbook uh, for the girls and basically goes over the top in trying to force them to learn plays and practice and do all this stuff so that they can beat the boys. Of course, this does not go well. In particular, her and Manny have a few different rounds of conflict. Her and Kendra even have some conflict. Um, it's a whole situation. Um, eventually we get to the game, um, and Manny gets hurt during the game and Liberty wants her to keep playing. Um, and basically the girls stage a mutiny and leave the floor and Liberty has to go and make amends. So they will go back out and play, but Liberty's not allowed to sort of lead them anymore. And she ends up having a heart-to-heart with Miss Hatsalakos about how to be a good coach and leader. Ultimately, Joey decides to sponsor both teams, which I feel like we could have just done this to start instead of going down this road, but whatever. Um, And Liberty gets a new jersey like the rest of the team. Happy days are here again. 
Um, on the other small side of the episode, um, Terry is, <laughs> <laughs> Terry is reading poems. Um, and while she's reading poems, she discovers that Paige does not have a lifeline. And so she tells Paige that she's going to die. Oh my God. And then Hazel <laughs> and Paige do some research and they figure out that Terry looked at the wrong hand. So Paige does have a lifeline, but Terry feels bad about uh, Paige dying. So she starts doing stuff for Paige. So Paige decides to manipulate Terry and keep up the ruse. And this goes on for a while until Ashley finally tells Terry that it's a ruse. And Terry then busts out a Ouija board <laughs> and um, demonstrates that she knows that it's a ruse and then chases Ad, uh, Paige off screen. And apparently, who knows, kicks her in the shins. I don't know. But, um, and yeah, that's mostly the entirety of that part of the plot. <laughs> Well done. Um, I want to, before we get started, I do want to point out one very important detail you left out, Jacinta, and that is Emma's baby blue fuzzy Kangle hat that she's wearing the entire episode. I had too many favorites on all of these episodes to make that my favorite, but that is a feature. It's almost like an extra character the entire episode. So just want to. I did like her pigtails. She has pigtails in this episode, and I did like those pigtails. Yes. Because it was, I thought they made, they were very, like, compared to some of the stuff that is done to these girls right. here. Well, there were only two of them instead of, like, three or four of them. Yes. I don't understand. I mean, Terry's hair was super crimped in the last episode, so. Yes. Yes. She really needs to stop. Uh, like- I mean, obviously. Go ahead. No, go for it. Oh, she just really, Terry really needs to stop wearing cornrows. Um, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can blame Justin Timberlake for that. <laughs> it's 2002. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is an interesting episode with t- uh, Liberty. I mean, Liberty gets such, like, doesn't really get romance narratives, right? She gets these friend mm-hmm. friend narratives for the most part. Um, but this one is interesting because it really highlights that she has friends. I think as this season has gone on, Liberty has become more like and more of a clear part of the group friend group. Mm-hmm. Um, I just loved, I mean, like you said, all the comedy and the use of like the military drums in the background <laughs> throughout. And, like, the point where she has the fantasy where they're carrying her yeah. because, mm-hmm. like, on their shoulders because she won the trophy. Um, mm-hmm. And really this, I mean, because really this episode is in part about the fact that Liberty doesn't know how to lose, right? And so there's something about being this type A perfect student mm-hmm. who can't get what she wants at first, which is to be on the team. So then she's going to be the best manager, but she doesn't. Yeah, I liked that a lot. There's a part during Liberty's reign of terror that uh, Manny tells her that she can't practice because she's on her period. And Liberty <laughs> Liberty gives her a tampon and tell, basically tells her to keep it moving. <laughs> oh my God, yes. 
I wrote in my notes, this predates the women's U.S. women's national soccer team, but like clearly Liberty it grew up to be the person that started syncing up the women's soccer team so they could win the World Cup. Because, yes, that was it. Also, she prints the 100 Days to Glory, like a uh, super thick, like mm-hmm. b- spiral bound book of things to do that includes yoga and meditation, yep. uh, which is what they point out as the, like, that doesn't sound that awful, honestly. No, I mean, basically, that's my quarantine goals is yoga, meditation, and not a lot of junk food. Probably less of your quarantine involves like elaborate, <laughs> like, uh, game theory like she at a certain point liberty has a, a dry erase board and she's plotting out game plays Brendan, and making you them recite them back you don't know my life i, I live in a, in a cave where i have a giant post-it note charlie day type of conspiracy theory um, yes um she does say envision achieve win a yep. simple formula so <laughs> simple everything you need right <laughs> just there. so you're so just so yeah. we're clear yeah. mm-hmm. well i mean I, oh my so God. like like i enjoyed this episode and the comedy was very good it like i do wonder sometimes what like what they have the sort of like motivations that they give to liberty are not always very clear to me because like for me like i i appreciated like that she went to talk to Joey uh, to like get funding. And I would have imagined, and I thought that it would have maybe made more sense if Liberty would have gone from that to like some other sort of like official channel. Like, I don't know, like maybe Mr. Radich or even like the school board, like I, you know, the sort of like, I would have imagined that like, she would have like maybe exhausted the, the sort of, official uh venues for taking care of the injustice of the grossly underfunded girls sports team and so like like I also wonder about like this getting played for laughs in a particular way like when actually it's it's a pretty important like and like systemic thing but you know we know that Degrassi has some issues with like making claims about like, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, inequity, but like, um, but I just, I I guess I just would have thought that like Liberty would have gone in a different direction than what ends up happening. I mean, they give her the conversation with the coach, right. Where he talks about percentages Mm-hmm. And he sort of seems to be half on her side, but also a realist. Right. I, I understood that part of the reason they end up in the game is not because is because the boys are hassling them, right? Right. Because like it's sort of a like I wonder if if that hadn't happened, if she would have gone to Radage as opposed to the sort of posturing that happens. Because what I thought was interesting was while the systemic stuff isn't necessarily resolved the boys don't look great in this episode. Uh, yeah. Also, I think there are a couple of little things to clarify for people who haven't seen the episode. First, uh, it's not hockey that they're playing. It's called, I, at first I was like, is this a sport? It's called floor hockey, yeah. mm-hmm. um, where they're just r- running around, again, just for people who haven't seen it, where they're running around hitting hitting it on a basketball court, which must be... <laughs> 
Canadian thing. Um, and then wait, wait. Also, hockey isn't just in Canada. I, we, I think we played in gym. Yeah. Really? Yeah, because wow. because you who has ice in their high school or middle school gym? We we do not. I mean, in rural Indiana, we I don't think the word hockey exists. So we always play. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh. So in addition to that, the jerseys that the girls are wearing—they're not actually jerseys. They're just scrimmage like tanks that they throw over their shirts. So it's not even. I mean, the ask is so little in terms of budget. Because, you know, it's one thing I just wanted to clarify, because this isn't like ice hockey where you also have to get the pads, et cetera. Like, it's a very small budget line item, like probably $500. Well, it sounds like, though, even the boys' teams need sponsorship, and the boys have have more teams. So they're not inclined to also give more money to the girls' teams. Totally. If the boys already also need sponsorship. I guess, and also, does Canada have an equivalent to Title Nine? I mean, I I don't know in terms of. Well, I don't know nothing about. I, well, even if they did, me either. But even I if they did have the equivalent to Title Nine, if there's so little funding that's actually coming through the school for it, I, I think that like, I mean, not that like you can get blood from a rock or anything, but it's, you know, not that like the school is going to automatically fund them, but like there seems to be a distinct lack of advocacy for the girls sports um, from the part of the adults at Degrassi. So like, totally. you know, if the money's not totally. there, the money's not there, but like, um, yeah. And but, the only reason I mentioned, huh? Oh, the only reason I mentioned the only reason I mentioned a Title IX equivalent is because I think that would also be a path that Liberty would take in terms of advocating for equity in sports. Like I could see her also be like, "This is we have this right as girls in public schools or something like that." I do think there's like an ongoing theme of Degrassi, not the school, not having much money to spare for things. So uh, we see that coming up in a few different narratives throughout the episode. Yeah. And I, and I think my point wasn't like that title nine doesn't matter here. I think that it does. And if there is an equivalent, like even if there isn't money, the adults should be sort of facilitating or helping the girls to, to like approach businesses for sponsorships. I mean, like there just seems to be like, there are other ways for the administration of Degrassi and the adults and the coaches and everything to sort of um, help bolster the efforts of the girls in ways that seem to already be in place for the boys teams. Totally. Do we want to talk about palm reading? (laughs) I didn't know. I didn't know it was called palmistry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a random mm-hmm. ass band that I like that has a song called Fatalist Palmistry. Uh, so that's why I know that term. Amazing. I, I mean, I liked that this was a callback to the last time Terry got involved in the occult. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ash is totally dismissed both times. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I liked that. I mean, this was funny. It was. It was an interesting, I mean, it's interesting because this is like the grade nines are so often given the more adult storylines. And so I think a storyline like this is interesting to remind us that there's still 
like they're just a year older than the grade eights, right? Like, and as much as often the show gives them the storylines involving, I mean, we've already, even just in the last couple episodes we've watched, right? Like really dark and deep and very adult things. There still is the fact that like, they're still involved in this sort of goofy, I mean, it becomes a little more mean girls than it would be if like Emma and Manny were dealing with this, partly because this, I mean, this is very much a Paige storyline <laughs> that mm-hmm. Paige uses this power against Terry and that Paige and Terry have this conflict. I mean, Terry's role in this friend group is consistently to be this like bullied friend. Um, and that thread was picked up, has been picked up multiple times and it really just comes back here. Um, the fact that Ashley mm-hmm. is the person who helps her fight back is sort of more evidence of the way that Ashley is slowly getting more woven in. And I mean, in the next episode that we're going to talk about, like Ashley being part of the friend group is like directly discussed even the way that she's slowly moving over this season has come back to them. Um, I just loved how seriously Terry takes when she thinks she's dying, when she brings her flowers. Oh my God. She brings her (laughs) wings. And she says, these are, I'm just thinking of you in your time of need. And then, Terry is so soft. She's like, oh, Paige is like, oh, do this report for me because I'm dying. And and Terry just is like, she just does it and then develops a stress zit (laughs) because of it. If Paige is actually buying into this narrative, why does she have to do her homework at all? Exactly. Exactly. This is true. <laughs> I know. Within the span of two days, Terry delves to stress it and stops sleeping because she's just apparently doing all of Paige's homework because Paige is too distracted because she's tired. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, the comedy on both sides of this, what's interesting is in a way that, like, the two movers are Paige and Liberty who are in so different people, but are both these sort of like, I don't know, literal like tyrants on the two sides of yeah. the storyline. Uh, they're, they're alpha women. I mean, yeah. they are the alpha women in their, in their two groups. I mean, yeah. also Terry did also manage to keep her white girl cornrows clean too during all yeah. of that. And priorities. Um, right. <laughs> She has to be ready for the funeral. That's what she's going to wear. Cornrows. Oh, no. <laughs> Probably. Oh. Uh, well, yeah. shall we move on to Dressed in Black? Sure. Oh. That is episode 18, season two, which I'm going to give us a little recap for. So episode 18 of season two, Dressed in Black, sort of picks up on the sort of gender politics we were just discussing with in episode 17, but makes it more explicitly about relationships. Um, so I guess the, the, the A plot, um, the episode begins with Ashley performing a song. <laughs> it's so good. It's so bad. It's so good. I, w- I, I wish, I wish you could see it. 
okay. if you are listening to this, <laughs> we go. will stop, stop, li- stop listening right now. Go to YouTube, pull up this episode, and just watch the first like thirty seconds. We, okay. we will also share it on our Instagram. <laughs> like that will be. We are. I will. I will make that happen. So <laughs> sorry, Brendan. <laughs> That's okay. I also, when it started, I was like, is this Evanescence? But, um, uh, so, no, Elvira and Sarah McLaughlin's baby. So, that, the episode begins with uh, Ashley performing a song in her bedroom uh, with candles for Jimmy. So, it begins. We don't know if she's performing for Jimmy. She's singing this song. She, in the middle of the song, she goes over to talk to Jimmy. The song is about how they are back together, as Ashley says, how glad I am we're back rediscovering each other. Um, And that sort of establishes that since the party in episode 16, they are making inroads back together. Uh, One of the things this episode really picks up on, though, is what Sonnet said, which is the sort of like questionable chemistry. And the episode sort of invests in that, which is that we come to understand that there's a like there's an idea of them together that is very different than its reality. And so over the course of the episode, one of the things that we see is that uh, Jimmy has his yearbook from grade eight, and he really wants Ashley to sign it. And it sort of sets up this discussion throughout the episode that Jimmy really remembers Ashley as she was before she sort of entered the pseudo-goth alternative phase she's in. And he puts up in his locker the season or the grade eight picture. And there's an ongoing thing where Ashley doesn't like it because it doesn't feel like who she is and Jimmy does. Um, And this sort of desire that Jimmy has for a certain version of Ashley becomes highlighted when Miss Kwan has them all read Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, which is, if you've seen 10 Things I Hate About You, it is that storyline. It is a storyline about an independent woman who changes herself for a man. Um, and Miss Kwan thinks class doesn't get it, so she pairs up the students and has them perform a scene from it and make it relate to their lives. So um, Ashley is paired with Craig. Jimmy is paired with Hazel. Um And over the course of the episode, Craig and Ashley sort of come to understand the play as being about the sort of sexism of Petruchio's character character, and his desire to control this woman. Um, And so that's sort of running alongside this ongoing debate between Ashley and Jimmy about whether Jimmy likes Ashley as she is now or as she is in the past. And it culminates in these class performances where Hazel and Jimmy do a performance of the scene where uh, Petruchio is a football player and Kate or Katerina is his cheerleader. And it's very much a story of, as Jimmy says, the ideal woman is your cheerleader. When Craig and Ashley do it, they do it as a domestic scene where Petruchio is like sort of controlling physically and verbally and sort of basically physically sort of breaks. He doesn't hurt her, but he sort of leans over her and makes her fall over. And it's very much this sort of violent sexist narrative about breaking someone's spirit. And the episode ends with Ashley finally signing the yearbook with a basically a goodbye to Jimmy because she's come to understand Jimmy wants a version of her she can't be. 
Um, and over the course of the episode, sorry, this is sort of a long, but this is, this is sort of a complicated one. Ashley also stops dressing as she has been for most of the season to try to be more like Jimmy wants her to be. The B plot, uh, which is, I think, also very interesting, is about condoms. Uh, there's a presentation to the kids about using condoms and protection. JT, of course, just thinks it's funny, but also like, ooh, sex. Toby is just more confused about when you should have condoms because he doesn't foresee having sex with Kendra anytime soon. And Toby and JT is like, you should have them just in case. So the boys, of course, because it's comedy, buy a lot of condoms. Spinner finds them in Toby's locker. Spinner thinks Toby is planning to have sex with his sister, Kendra. He gets upset. Kendra also gets upset and attacks Toby, which is delightful for thinking <laughs> he'd have sex with her. Um, and Toby kind of explains to Spinner that it's not about, like, that he was just getting them just in case because he wanted to be prepared. And then Spinner sort of puts condoms all over JT and the sort of takeaway that he gives everyone is it's not about the condoms, it's about the pressure to have sex. So this episode is very much a, about the gender dynamics of relationships, I guess. Um, sorry, that was a long, that was a long description. There, I think the details in this storyline are very important, especially since there's a lot of uh, nonverbal cues that we're supposed to pick up. So I appreciate that you were that detailed, Brendan. Uh, I tried. I mean, I think I really liked the way this was put together. I think, I mean, the use of Taming of the Shrew, I thought was really interesting. Um, and the sort of I mean, one of the things we've had in previous episodes is the suggestion that Craig has a crush on Ashley. And I think this episode, by putting Ashley and Craig together, highlights that. And to his credit, Craig, I mean, he's flirting with her a little bit, but he is creeping on her in this episode. It's just, he's saying the things that she wishes Jimmy would say about how sexist it is to want to change the woman you are with to be like you want her but he's saying it through the characters in the play. Right. And, and um, I think that, yeah. Well, and part of it is also, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, part of it is also that Craig will say in actually say something as opposed to when she tries to get Jimmy to have an mm -hmm. opinion um, at a, yet another family dinner. Um, she basically has to drag it out of him. Um, and Ashley wants someone who will actually sort of, have a perspective about things that are happening and say Yeah, it. and that, yeah, she wants people to have a, sorry, she wants Jimmy to have an opinion about things, but also that family dinner, the opinion she wants him to have is about condoms, which, are you fucking kidding me, Ashley? Like, he's gonna want to speak up about condoms at a dinner with her parents. <laughs> sorry, that's Well, and I, I think that it's also, like, I don't know, I think I'll preview my prediction but like uh, my prediction is ash and craig or as i have noted crash um so <laughs> so that crash is going to happen um but i think that it's also to be specific huh? uh i was just gonna say to be specific the fandom refers to it as but i think that it's like crucial to Ashley at least that like 
Craig and she have the same opinion. So like they very quickly when they're assigned to do this scene together, come to a consensus about like what, like what their take should be about. Like it, it to them, it's not comedy to them. It's about like exploring um, this, uh, you know, the, the real gendered um, and sort of violent dynamics that are going on in, in this classic Shakespeare play. I mean, there is what I also, I mean, yeah, the scene, so I left that out because there was like, like Sonnet said, there is just so much that all matters in this episode. And I think very precisely, um, I mean, the family dinner conversation. So it's Ashley and Toby and their respective parents, right. Who are married to each other and Jimmy and it's about the fact that condoms were discussed at school and a debate about whether or not students should be given condoms because it'll make them have sex, yes, no. And it's awkward. What's interesting is Jimmy agrees with her dad, like the dad, which is not what Ashley believes, but Ashley seems okay with that. I mean, the other thing that seems to be going on is that Jimmy won't explicitly say through the whole episode that until close to the end that he wants Ashley to be the way she used to. He's just sort of manipulating her, right? The other thing is there's this sort of dynamic where like Jimmy often doesn't tell Ashley what he wants. He just manipulates her into feeling like she should do what he wants. There's this sort of like insidious dynamic of Jimmy. I don't know. There's a way he's running this relationship where he's dropping all these cues about how she should change herself that she's picking up. And I don't think those are necessarily all his fault, but I do think she's really searching for him to say what he wants, but what he wants isn't who she is right anymore. Yeah. And to wit, there's a, I mean, I think that there's a crucial scene very early in the episode where they're both at one of their lockers and a bunch of boys walk by and make fun of Ashley for her sort of goth look. And Jimmy's response to this is like, they don't know how beautiful you are on the inside. And, and that paired with like, it like that's, that's kind of devastating to hear (laughs) like uh, when you, you, like when you are that age and the implication being that you are not beautiful on the outside and, and that being paired with his um, attachment to the way that actually used to look is like, that's, that's not even a subtle hint. That's, that's, you know, why can't you be mm-hmm. the way that, uh, you know, I want you to be. Um, and, uh, there was another point that you brought up that I was going to respond to, but I forgot what it was. I mean, I, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's not subtle, but it's never, I mean, he never says explicitly to her, I wish you could go back to the way you were. He's just like sort of this molding. And it's interesting that he gets paired with Hazel and they do this sort of, cheerleader football thing um and he says right the perfect wife is like his own cheerleader right for a football player and ashley is definitely willing to be a cheerleader for her partner but she's not going to be a like a a yes woman and i think that seems to be the distinction well into that see i i wonder uh, just really fast i do wonder though if it's because I was, I had a little bit more of a generous read of Jimmy, which is not normal for me. Um, because I also kind of thought of it as also being nostalgic for 
their relationship that was not just her aesthetic, but the fact that he really wants her to sign his yearbook um, that she didn't sign because they broke up. I mean, he wants to get that feeling that they had before and it's just not there anymore because they grew up. And and to the point about being a, a yes person to your partner, like, I think that like this, this thing about, Ashley wanting Jimmy to have an opinion. Jimmy, like, of course, it's a very awkward situation at the dinner table with her parent or with like her and Toby's parents. Um, he chooses the safe route. Um, and but we don't actually know if he believes mm-hmm. that. That was the other thing I was gonna pick up on what you said, Brendan. Like, mm-hmm. we don't know that that's actually his opinion. We see that as the safe bet. And Ashley, I think at this point in her mm-hmm. like development her life is not about like choosing the safe bet and so I think that it was just an it was another way in which like I don't know like she articulates it as like she wants him to have an opinion but I think that like part of it also was like are you just are you just taking the path of least resistance and like is this sort of like nostalgia for what we had enough to actually get us through um a, you know like developing a new facet of our relation like our relationship together or do you just want something that felt like feels easy because it felt good in the past versus like actually getting to know me um as I am now and I mean it's very I mean we all laughed about the opening scene which to be clear, involves candles on a piano in a bedroom, and it's so like extra. exceptional lighting, and it's so performed, but it's also very, it's so performed, right? I think that's the thing is like, in the previous episode, when they have the moment with the glass, it's awkward, but it feels believably to me like they're like, eh? But then this whole episode seems to be them constantly trying to perform relationship and just missing each other, right? She wants a relationship with someone who would appreciate a song, but even the song is overwrought compared to other things she's even performed on this show. And he wants the girl in the yearbook. And there's that devastating to me scene where she's looking at who she used to be in the yearbook and doesn't seem to recognize that person anymore, which I thought was really like, I don't know, for this show, I mean, this show can be delicate, but that was an exceptionally delicately handled moment with the yearbook. I would also note that the drama of the opening is bookended with a dramatic ending. Oh, yeah. Which is the actual breakup, and Jimmy starts reading the message in the in the yearbook, and and Ashley starts backing away slowly and tearing up as she backs away and she finishes the message um, that's in the yearbook by saying, love always Ashley, as she walks away. And I was like, this is so dramatic, even for high school. <laughs> oh my God. You know, she did that exit just so she could write a song about it. Well, and the, <laughs> at the beginning, I know the you, the real you is the way that the song lyrics end. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I, I thought that that was interesting given that like Jimmy probably feels the same way that that like he knows mm-hmm. the ash that like 
he knows the real Ash who isn't putting on this performance of gothicness or whatever, but like, and, and I'm not saying that like, she doesn't feel that deeply. I'm just saying that I think that they both um, feel like they have ownership over a particular version of the other in a way that like is, is first of all, not true. And second of all, um, the, the barrier between them actually like, getting over the awkwardness of getting back together. I mean, when Ash, it's interesting when Ashley sort of strips away her gothness, she doesn't dress like she did the last season. It's very blank, right? Her face is very blank of makeup. Her hair is flatter. Her clothes are very blank. She's sort of a blank canvas and like someone says, is it Spinner? You actually look alive. Ellie says you look tamed. And so it's almost like she is this blank canvas. She is neither the old Ashley nor the new Ashley. She's just sort of like neutral. There's a sort of neutrality to that, um, which is also, I think about, yeah, pointing out that like different people can read onto her different things. And she's, she thought she figured out who she was, but Jimmy gives her this opportunity to be an old version of herself together, but neither of them are there anymore. Right. Um, I mean, obviously the show is much more focused on he, her because we get these sort of private scenes and Jimmy never gets these sort of private scenes by himself, right, that Ashley gets. Um, I mean, it is interesting, too, that the pairings end up being Hazel and Jimmy and Craig and Ashley. And so we have these sort of two Black characters together and the sort of two white characters together in a way that the pairings haven't been um, in this sort of scene as well. Um, right, because Hazel isn't as important as Craig is in the sort of duos that are put together by Miss Kwan. What a good English teacher, huh? Uh, this seems oh like a pedagogical I move. I'm, uh, it, I know. I, I have questions about this scene nope. that was chosen because it does not seem like Kate has very many lines in this section. So, like, it's a interesting choice for them to be performing. Um, but also to go back to that a little bit, and this actually connects to something I want to say about the level of detail in this episode that we've already brought up a little bit. Um, there's this moment, and I don't think I watched, I noticed it originally when I watched this episode back in the day. I remember this being one of the first, like, Degrassi, the Next Generation episodes I watched before I went back and watched, like, the older ones. Um, and I don't think I noticed this, but there's this moment where Craig, in their performance, puts on these glasses. And I was like, oh, oh, Craig's his dad. That's what he's doing here. He's being his dad in this performance because his dad wore glasses and was abusive. And we talked about him um, in a, in the previous episodes that featured him. And I'm like, oh, that's what he's pulling from here. That's why he has this perspective. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, their performance is intense. I mean, I think also just the level of performance by all four of the teenagers is kind of exceptionally <laughs> yeah. impressive. Uh, to quote... Quote Miss Kwan, wow, <laughs> intense. Also, Ashley is wearing a long-haired wig in yep. that too. 
um, again, to, to do a nod to her former self. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, I thought it was, I don't know, I thought it was really well handled and I, I thought it was interesting with the second plot being this sort of interesting thing about condoms and sex and, I mean, if we want to transition to that plot, I mean, I thought what was interesting about the B plot was it wasn't it wasn't a JT. I mean, it wasn't a JT as usual plot, right? This was a plot about these boys who have this idea of sex and this idea of condoms, but they don't quite know why they should want them. Like, it wasn't creepy in a way it could have been creepy. It's more about the the feeling like you're supposed to be ready for something. And I like that Toby is written as sort of like, I'm not having sex. Like he's very clearly like, what? Kendra and I are not ready to have sex. And then the condoms for Kendra and for Spinner telegraph something else. And so then at the end of the message is that having condoms doesn't mean you have to have sex. I don't know, I just really liked, that was also that level of detail. Cause in a different version of this, it would just be like, we have condoms. Right. We should have condoms, mm -hmm. right? Like. I don't know. I just thought that was handled so interestingly. And when Kendra attacks Toby, it was amazing. I also appreciated that they did have Spinner say, you know, she does like, she doesn't nobody, she doesn't need any more pressure to have sex. Mm -hmm. So yeah. cool it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's enough pressure out there about having sex. She doesn't need any more. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a brief moment where JT is creeper creeps out and he says our studly future calls yeah but i like i think that because of all of the other scaffolding around this to make this be about exploration and confusion and kind of like just practice almost like let's practice buying condoms now so that like when we actually need them like we understand something about them like i i appreciated the scene in the store where um where they're looking at all the different kinds and they're like rib for her pleasure. What does that mean? And, and so, but like, they're, they're like exploring in the space and trying to figure out like, okay, like how do like, what does all of this mean? How do I do this? And, and, and so there's another moment at the register where JTS for the girl's phone number. But like, I think that the, all of the other scaffolding is really meant to sort of like highlight that this is JT's sort of like defense mechanism. Like this is his sort of shield mm -hmm. um, for like when he does feel confusion or like um, any kind of like insecurity. Um, but I mean, I, I really liked the um, most of the conversation around like, <laughs> uh like trying to figure out like what condoms are and how they exist in the world and and also jt responds to um toby's noting the pina colada flavor condoms with like what too bad they don't have bacon flavor <laughs> and i'm like <laughs> give it 15 yeah, years so buddy i'm sure I'll they will exist soon also when he does hit on the lady at the register the employee, the male employee behind them, like looks up it's and makes so a face. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just laugh. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I liked too that it was this, like, <clears throat> I think Degrassi sometimes does a really good job of making clear how unclear an issue is by having the coach 
spend all this time on contraception and then present abstinence to them and then I'll be like, what? So then Toby's question to JT about, like, I'm confused about condoms, when do you buy them makes sense because there's these two seemingly contradictory messages of like, we're gonna tell you all the ways to have safe sex and then tell you not to have sex at all. And then well, the parents like have that same conversation at the dinner table, right? Well, and when we've seen Dr. Sally before, she has given them condoms in yeah. her presentation. Yeah. So they didn't get any condoms this time. Because she's not there, right? Right. And the parents, I mean, the parents here, it's interesting to compare them to Spike and Snake because it's an awkward conversation, but they're such a different, like these are the parents we were just talking about in that other episode right. that we expect who are a whole two decades removed at least from the kids and are actually as cosmopolitan as maybe Spike and Snake would like themselves to be just because they're oblivious. Right. No, I really liked, I mean, I, the end of this, I was a little annoyed because so when this, we started watching the show, I didn't like Spinner as a bully. And there is a weird way in which this episode ends with him kind of spectacularly humiliating JT. And I think the show is okay with it because it's JT, but I actually really didn't like that it had to humiliate him right. to make its point. Because in this episode, JT was not a, really a, like he's a little bit creepy, but he's not, I don't know. It, it was a confusing message. Whenever Spinner becomes a bully again, I just don't like him anymore. Even if the show gives it in the service of this message about sex and his sister, I don't know. That part I could have done without. Also, it was just kind of weird. Yeah. But otherwise, I liked that. I mean, I thought it was a very well put well, together and, episode. I mean, we've talked about Kendra attacking Toby at the locker a couple of times or in passing. But, like, the thing that I actually really appreciated about that is, is like, it, as she pushes him into the locker, like she yells at him, how old am I? And like makes him answer. And, and so like, I, I love Kendra and how, um, like how forthright she is with Toby and what her desires are and what her, um, sort of like level of readiness. Like she's just like an exceptionally clear communicator with Toby throughout their relationship. Mm -hmm. And I, and I just really appreciate that, like that they have, have that when there are so many other characters who struggle with communication. So I just, this is me fangirling over Kendra. I think she's great. Mm-hmm. Well, do we want to talk about favorite things? Sure. I'll go ahead and start because Tracker's hair is in braids under a ah! bandana, but like in the in under a purple, a purple bandana, bandana, bandana at the beginning of Message in a Bottle. But like, also, did he bleach his goatee? Because like he, he like yeah. I thought he was. I thought it was a different actor. I was so confused. <laughs> like, I mean, that's a level of dedication to something that I just like. That's a lot. So that's my favorite thing is is Tracker's bleach goatee. Stole mine. Oh, you stole mine. I I always forget his name, so I kept writing Dyson because that's his name on Lost Girl. It's like Dyson's goatee. I gotta think of a new one. Oh, and Emma's Somebody white else. eyeshadow. I mean, my favorite thing is when. 
Mm, yes, that was on my list too. Uh, I think my favorite thing is we don't get a lot of Ellie in these episodes, but in Message in a Bottle, when she's they invite try to get her to go to the party, she said I'd have more fun sculpting my earwax. <laughs> and uh, in the same set of conversations, uh, someone says of Ashley, she's more down to earth. Uh, and so just these sort of like, uh, yeah. But the, I'd have more fun sculpting my earwax. Always to more Ellie Zingers. That was my other one. Um, so in the episode where the t- the girls are playing the guys uh, for the jerseys, JT tries to do the splits as the mascot. Mm-hmm. And that is some slapstick comedy gold. Um, so I think that would probably be my favorite. Anytime JT tries to be mascot, it just kills me. Uh, yeah, I have a, I have a couple. One is the Emma's boxing gloves hanging on her bag oh and message in a bottle. What is that? I don't, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why she has boxing gloves. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and then also in, uh, dressed in black, um, the line where Ashley says, did my mom pick out my clothes in relation to her yearbook picture, <laughs> as well as the giant camera that reappears again so she can take her new picture, mm-hmm. um, her early attempts at selfie, but then Craig comes and takes the picture for her with the giant camera. Yes, yes. And all of Manny's zigzag braids and all the crimping. That would be my <laughs> other thing. In fact, we all should have crimped our hair. For this no, no. I'm good, thanks. Mine was Crashly, um, so apparently it's a thing, and I did it. I made it. I made a one that is going to actually happen. So it's on but- you. Mine was Emma plus Sean equals bad news. Is what I have written in my notes. That seems like low hanging fruit. And. Uh, my other one was, this is the last time we're going to hear about the girls' uh, floor hockey team. <laughs> like, I wish it would come back, but as we discussed, right, the basketball team is kind of always there. I lay heavy bets we will maybe once ever he- again hear about this team uh, because even the show only give, is giving 80% of its time to the <laughs> boys' teams. So, so those but, are mine. But also, everybody is on every team because Kendra's also on the soccer team and like some other team. I saw and Sean is on all the teams. And like, that, I don't, I don't think they have time for this. <laughs> well, if those, if these come true, you'll hear about it on our podcast. Uh, so, <laughs> so join us again, and uh, you know, just remember. To you think whatever it takes. I know that I can make it through. <laughs> Bye. 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 You can find us on Twitter at That Bleeding Pod and on Facebook and Instagram at That Bleeding Podcast. Listen to and subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts, amongst other places that grab podcasts out of the ether. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other fellow Degrassi nerds find our shenanigans. Shout out to Chris Robley for the use of his song Anonymous off his fifth solo album, The Great Make Believer, as our new theme music. Learn more about Chris and his music at 
chrisrobley.com. That's R-O-B-L-E-Y. And follow him on Instagram and Twitter at chrisrobley. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you all soon. Look for another episode from us in a couple weeks.